looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Gary, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week. Welcome, everybody, to Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. This is episode 43, and it's a special one, the return of Jackie Martling. That's right, Jackie the Joke Man Martling. We're discussing so many things together. Rodney Dangerfield, his book, The Years on the Howard Stern Show, You're going to love it, and it's coming up in just a little bit. As always, thanks to everyone who subscribes and likes and shares their love of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show, with all their friends and families at events and social medias and all that kind of stuff. I can't thank you enough. Your love is what keeps me going. And I do want to send out some love to Ciphered Knowledge with Chrissy Cipher for having me on the show last week. Had a great conversation. You can check out Ciphered Knowledge on YouTube. Also want to thank Scott Curtis, as always, for having me as a guest on the Behind the Bits talk show. Now streaming live exclusively on Twitch. Follow him there. Check that out. Scott Curtis has a great podcast, Behind the Bits, and a live talk show, which is not a podcast. It's a talk show, which is on Twitch. So check both those great shows out. Also, don't forget to check me out. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, you checking me out anyway. No, but seriously, don't forget to check me out every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm live for Crossing the Streams. We're talking about great TV shows you should be streaming. We got great guests every week. We talk about great shows all live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at the same time, and Twitch, but nobody really follows me on Twitch, so focus on YouTube. Check that out Wednesdays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. It's interactive. It's engaging. People comment during the show. We react. It's a lot of fun, so check that out as well. And you know what else you should check out? Our sponsor. That's right. You guys have been amazing week to week. I have the best fans. You guys really embrace the sponsors. I got word that coffee table books sold out across the entire United States and world. Everywhere. There isn't a coffee table book that you can purchase now because of the power of advertising on Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. What's exciting, really exciting, though, is the sponsor for today. It's a return sponsor, my first return sponsor. They heard Jackie, the joke man, Martling, was coming back to the show, and they're like, we want to come back. You had our phone ringing off the hook last time. So you know who's back? The Tom Selleck helpline. That's right. Tom Selleck's there when you need him. 516-922-9463. Call Tom whenever you got a question. Do you need an amazing scrambled eggs recipe? Call Tom. Do you need to have WandaVision explain to you because you really haven't seen all the mcu movies call tom why did daft punk break up tom Selleck can tell you he knows everything call the tom Selleck helpline at 516-922-9463 tell him live from detroit the jeff dewaskin show sent you you won't regret it anyway anything you need tom Selleck can help 516-922-9463 call today all right well thanks again to everyone for supporting the sponsors week after week after week it helps us keep the lights on and i can't thank you enough And now it's time for the social media tip. Okay, today's tip, ladies and gentlemen, is contests. Contests are amazing for engagement. We've got an amazing giveaway going on right now. It's the second one we've done. So this is reason for you to sign up for my mailing list and also to follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Dewaskin Show. We gave away some Amazon gift cards. And right now, we're giving away three signed copies of the Joke Man Bow to Stern 
by today's guest, Jackie Martling. That's right. You can win a personalized copy of the book. If you're listening to this podcast before March 3rd, 2021 at 11 p.m. Eastern, go on Twitter, tweet with the hashtag, hashtag title of my book giveaway, and tag my Twitter account at Jeff DeWaskin Show. You got to do both. The hashtag, hashtag title of my book giveaway, and tag at Jeff DeWaskin Show. You'll get a tweet that'll have a link to a registration form. Go to the registration form and enter for your chance to win one of the three copies of the book. If you're listening to this podcast and it's after March 3rd, that's okay. Go to at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Sign up for my mailing list. We're going to do contests all the time. This is the second one we've done. We did one previously to support the Kenneth Johnson episode. And we're doing this one with our good friend Jackie Martling to support his book. We're going to be doing this a lot. And we're excited to give back to all the fans in a fun and engaging way. If you want to learn more, shoot me an email on how you can do this for your podcast or your company or your brand. Just shoot me an email at jeff at jeffisfunny.com. I'll hook you up. I'll show you how we did it and how it's done. A lot of fun and great results. I've already doubled my mailing list, which is so exciting. Anyway, so go on Twitter, check out the show notes, go to at Jeff DeWaskin Show and enter the contest and hopefully you can win one of the books. And that's the social media tip. I am really excited now to share my second conversation with you that I had with Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Jackie originally visited the show back in September 2020, episode 18, if you want to search it up. I definitely recommend. It's a great conversation. After that conversation, Jackie was kind enough to send me his book, The Joke Man Bow to Stern. I read it. He came back. And he shared a lot of stories from the book. And I'm going to share that with you right now. So enjoy my follow-up conversation with Jackie, The Joke Man Martling. All right. Excited to have back on the show. Jackie, the joke man, Martling. How you doing, Jackie? Welcome back. You know, the older I get, the the sillier that stupid name sounds. But if it wasn't so perfectly accurate, uh, I would forego it. But it tells the tale too well. I'm doing great. Still swimming uh, a couple times today. And uh, I just ate like a pig with my lovely girlfriend, Barbara. Doing a lot of cameo.coms, like uh, people are shut in, so they need jokes. You know, it's crazy. I don't know how, but my popularity seems to be climbing with 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds. I'm getting cameos from people that weren't born when I left the show. It's kind of crazy, you know, but I love it. It's all fun. Well, you are a legend. Let's talk about the book, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. I read the book. You sent it to me after the last interview. Thank you. It was a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. And I'm very excited because when I wrote the book, I wrote enough. Inadvertently, I wrote so much that there was enough for two books. And now there's actually some interest because there's more and more fans that are listening to the old Stern shows that are getting interested in me. And my book is getting a little popularity. And I'm getting I'm getting a little, I, I think heat might be an exaggeration, but I think they might be ready to go with a sister chat, a sister. It's not a sequel because all the things happened at the same time, but a sister volume because nowadays, you know, you don't print them up and send them to the bookstores. You know, they're digital or they're audible. So there's not the, the layout of the money to print and ship and yuck, 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 yuck. So you're not taking a big chance by saying, hey, go download this, you know. So maybe by the next time I talk to you, I'll be saying, hey, second part. Well, yeah. Well, if you have a second part, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And maybe, um, you know, my friend Frank is still mad at me for not naming the book. What I kind of toyed around with naming it way, way, way in the beginning because Howard wrote a book. He wrote another book. And then Robin wrote a book. 
And the day he announced her book on the air and she was all excited and he was all excited for her, blah, blah, blah. And, yuck, yuck, yuck. and as we were going to commercial, as he was pulling down the microphone, he turned to me and he said, if you ever write a book, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend, Frankie Bear, I call him Frankie No Clothes. He wanted me, which is a great name for a book. If you ever write a book, you're fired. So that'll be the name of the other, the new hunk, you know. <laughs> be, yeah. Isn't that funny? Isn't that great? And he was half kidding, but half absolutely not kidding. <laughs> I'm glad you wrote the book. It's great. I, I'm thrilled that you read it, obviously. Very thrilled that you read it. Well, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to bring you back so we could talk about that and then your time on the Howard Stern show. I, I was particularly interested in the stories with Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield was one of my favorite comedians. So I was I was in awe. I was jealous. You got to you got to tour with him, you got to hang with him and you know what's really crazy is that I you read the book. I'm not a I'm not a comedy fan per se. I mean, we've told jokes and I always told jokes. So I loved Red Fox, loved Penny Youngman, and I told dirty jokes since I was a kid. But I wasn't a kid growing up that wanted to be a comedian. I didn't think that was an option. I thought that was something that you were anointed to be. When like when somebody said, Are you the class clown? I wouldn't even say yes to that because I thought you kind of had to be anointed. And I wouldn't have taken it on myself to anoint myself class clown. But, you know, everybody had the Carl, you know, you listen to Carlin album once. And you, I remember listening to Shelley Berman while I was in like seventh grade and the first Robert Klein album. But I didn't aspire to be any kind of a comic. But I loved Rodney because it was boom, 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 boom. And a day after he was on The Tonight Show, we'd all call each other up and we'd quote the jokes back and forth. So the fact that I sold him some jokes and got to hang with him was absolutely crazy. I mean, it would have been crazy enough, but he was he was my absolute favorite. It, it was just a dream. It wasn't long lived, but God, it was everything was so memorable. I mean, I didn't tour with him. I went away. We went away for two weeks. You know, one week he was on vacation in Fort Lauderdale and the next week he was working in Las Vegas. And I just was with him for those two weeks. And I still think of things that happened that I forgot to tell people about to this day. I mean, because because he had this very this thing where he couldn't be anything but Rodney. And everything about him was funny. You know, when I went to go get his kids to take him to the airport to go to Florida, we went the day before him. I said, Rodney, you got to realize that every time you open your mouth, I'm going to laugh. And he says, oh, what up? You know, what up? And he and I did every time he opened his mouth. It was just uh, so much fun. <laughs> so I, I do have to ask you, you don't really go into it other than mentioning he was there. Paul Williams was there in Vegas when you were in Vegas with him. What was he? I just watched an entire documentary on Paul Williams. He's a fascinating person. I don't know how much was in the book. What happened was Paul Williams and Rodney shared the bill at the Aladdin the week I was with Rodney. Now, Paul Williams is a singer-songwriter with an orchestra. So Rodney said, I'll go on first. Rodney's old show business, he's like, what, comedy and then music. Never music, then comedy, comedy, then music. You know, the comedian, then the music. Paul Williams was absolutely thrilled. That's how he wanted to do it. But of course, that's the way you would do it. But he had that, Rodney had class and style in his own way. So Paul Williams was so thrilled that he let Rodney use his jet to go back to Los Angeles to film the, the reaction shots for Caddyshack. Paul was so thrilled with Rodney and with us that he invited Rodney and me over to his house on Sunday afternoon for lunch or dinner, whatever you call it. It was absolutely mind-blowing. He had so much cocaine and 
we smoked so much pot and got drunk and did coke and Paul Williams' wife, Katie, I don't, I think they're long since together. I know it doesn't matter if I talk about this because Paul's been sober for like 30 years. I think maybe that afternoon he decided he would get sober. <laughs> we got so wrecked and had so much fun. And the funniest thing, I, I don't know if I wrote about this because it's a hard thing to go over, but Rodney said, I can still see him sitting on the couch going, Paul, you know, where do, the, where do these songs come from? You know, he goes, well, you know, Rodney, they're really, they're just in the air. I just pluck them out of the air. And Rodney's sitting back in the couch, all relaxed and coked up. Like, they come out of the air, huh? There's no getting over that. It's fucking beautiful, Paul. That's fucking beautiful. There's no getting over. Oh, they're just in the fucking air. How that's beautiful. And meanwhile, Paul's wife is like, let's do some more coke. Let's do some more coke. All the time with him was pinch me time. But that was especially pinch me time. So we got so high and had so much fun. And like 10 years ago, maybe 20, maybe five, at whatever, I, I met Jimmy Webb, who's a songwriter who works on the ASCAP board with Paul Williams. And I said, let me try and touch base. And I sent Paul Williams an email and said, Paul, this is Jackie Martling. I don't know if you remember me. I went on to be on the Stern Show, but we spent an afternoon and like, and he wrote back and said, do you really think I wouldn't remember you when it was one of the best afternoons I ever spent in my entire fucking life, which was like very, very cool. And, he, and, he, and at the time, of course, he was sober again already. What a great character. And, you know, and the shows were, you know, two shows a night for I think it was seven nights. And it was just storybook. You know, I had the job. I don't know how, how well you know Rodney's act. But Joe Ansis was his side guy, his friend that uh, was funny as hell, but never went on stage. And when Rodney was on stage at Dangerfields, his club, about halfway through his show, Joe would yell something. And it was my job in Las Vegas to yell what Joe used to yell. And it was really funny because people would look at me like, you know, how rude are you? Because in the middle of his act, Joe would yell, so what do you do for a living? Rodney go, I get guys for your sister. And it always brought, always brought that to house. So I got to yell at from the back of the showroom in Las Vegas. So what are you doing for a living? Thank you guys for your sister. Why don't you come with me in the bathroom? I'll show you how small you are. Just really, really a great fun. That's awesome. I know I go on and on. He's so funny because battled with cigarettes and dieting every waking second of his life. And we were between shows in Las Vegas, went into, you know, the diner or whatever, you know, the little luncheonette or whatever, you know, one of the little places where you get a hamburger. And so we have something to eat. He just have a piece of cake. I said, nah, you know, I'm full. Come on, have a piece of cake. I said, Bobby, I don't want a piece of cake. Come on, chocolate cake. It's good cake. Like, hey, bring him, a, bring him a piece of cake. I'm like, I don't want a piece of cake. And the waitress came and put a piece of chocolate cake in front of me. And he proceeded to reach over and eat the entire piece of cake off my plate. And I said, do you realize that if it's in front of me and you eat it, you still get the calories? <laughs> he ate the whole thing off my plate. I, that, that was so him. And that, that's kind of subtle, but it, you can't believe how entertaining that is. It's, you see him doing battle with each forkful, like, oh, oh what? <laughs> <laughs> if you eat it in small bites, it, it does it. It doesn't hit you the same. It's it's much right, healthier right. in small bites. You know, yeah, if you're standing up at the refrigerator, it doesn't count. The calories don't count till you sit down. You know, we all play the same game. So the other the other small tidbit in the book before we get to the Howard Stern stuff that I found extremely extremely <laughs> interesting was you made all your comedy albums through. You know, you'd work at a club and you'd make a comedy album and you'd put it together and you'd put it no, out. No, I wouldn't work at a club. 
Oh, now, well, I mean, like you'd record it from, at the club. Recorded you know, at, I, the first comedy album I recorded at the restaurant where we were throwing a comedy show because there were no comedy club. You know, it was a comedy show where, you know, like Paul Reiser came out and Carol Leifer and Rick Overton, they came out from the city. Peter Bales, all these guys, because they would come out to Long Island and they'd make 50 bucks and they'd get stoned and get drunk and get laid. And it was like, in, in meanwhile, Manhattan, they're making $5 and getting a hamburger, you know? So it was a, we were an oasis to them. And I, I was, everybody's laughing at every word I said. So I made an album. Six months after I went into comedy, I had my own record. It was really crazy. So the interesting thing in the book, a comedian, an up and coming comedian, that maybe some people have heard of, if I say his name, Eddie Murphy, <laughs> asked you to help him make a tape. And you said, no. <laughs> what, what happened was, it, by, then, the, by then the East Side Comedy Club, the, the show we did was at a place called Cinnamon. And Richie Minervini and his brother and another guy got together enough money. I didn't have any money, so I wasn't included. And they opened a place called the Eastside Comedy Club. So I'm set up to do my second album at the Eastside Comedy Club. The microphones are hanging there. I'm ready to do it. And Eddie came up and said, Jack, you have an album? And now you're making another album? I said, yeah. He said, Jack, I want to have an album. And I said, I'm too busy, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> Not, he wasn't even asking me in specifically, but you know, he didn't say, Hey, I want you to record now. He said, I want to have an album. I knew where he's driving at. And I said, You know, the cherry on the top of the Eddie Murphy story of you not helping him was uh, I'm exaggerating the time frame, but then five minutes later, he was on, he became the biggest thing on SNL ever, <laughs> right? I don't think he was on Saturday Night Live yet. No, right after. Okay, so you send it, you send your records blind to Howard Stern. He likes them. What happened was I sent my records to everybody. After I put out a record, I sent it to everybody. After I put a second record out, I sent both of them to everybody. I mean, if I bumped into somebody on the street and they say, hey, I saw you at Chuckles Comedy Club the other day, give me a business card. I'll send you a record because I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just sending them and sending them. And by the time my future wife came to work with me, I had three records and we were sending three records and the matching cassettes and all my promo to everybody. Anybody that I ran into, we must have sent out seriously between three and four hundred sets of these things and the records cost a lot of money and the cds cost a lot of money and the postage costs a lot of money and we're making money at governors but i mean we're burning everything back in the dialer joke cost me a fortune we were just having fun we're getting stoned and drinking and just working our balls off no idea what we're doing and i was working in dc at a place called garvin's laughing and this guy says hey this wild man got fired from the radio here in Washington, and he's going to NBC in New York. You really should look him up because he would love you. He used to do broadcasts in his underwear on Friday mornings from the club here. So when I got home, I, me and Nancy sent the records and the matching cassettes blind. Howard Stern, care WNBC AM, and put it in the mail like we put in the other 300 sets. And then a couple months later, you know, it took him a while to get there and get settled. And Nancy called. She says, hey, that guy Howard Stern just called. He wants to come into the city and do his show. Called the WNBC and he got right on the phone and said, hey, you listen to your albums. You know every joke in the world. You want to come hang out on the air today? And I said, sure. So I drove in and I always love saying I drove in and I walked in and it was Howard and Robin and Fred. And I sat down. And the very last day I ever worked there in March of 2001, it was Howard and Robin and Fred and me, which was, that, it, that, it was the Beatles. And I sat down there and for four hours, we laughed our asses off. And, you know, I was good company. I was fun. And Howard said, man, you're a lot of fun. Come back next week. So I came back once a week for free for three years. It was great. And then finally you joined full-time and got paid, yes? <laughs> it was funny. I was, he was supposed to give me parking money, which he never did. That was a whole funny thing. 
But then he called me up and said, hey, we're going to mornings. He got fired from afternoons at NBC. And then he got hired at K-Rock. And he was on K-Rock afternoons. And I was on one day a week when he went to K-Rock. And then he called and said, hey, we're going to mornings. I want you to give me a price. I want you to be there two days a week. So I gave him a horribly low price. And I was there two days a week. And within, I should go back and find, between a month or two months, I went from two days to three days to four days to five days because it was glaringly, and I'm not being pompous here, it was glaringly different when I wasn't there. He was he was just funnier. You know, there, there was an extra brain work, and that's, that's no big deal. You know, it, it's just how it works. There's two people working, it just gets funnier. You know, he's driving the truck, and I could read the map, you know. So I went to five days, and then we got syndicated to Philadelphia, and, and we went to Pluto. Boom. It was slow, but it was like a frog on a frying pan, just slow, you know, you know, three cities, five cities, six cities, eight cities. You know, I used to get interviewed because Fred didn't really do interviews and Robin and Howard aren't talking to anybody. And I'd always get interviewed and people say, you know, you guys are so good. You know, this is like 1988. You guys are so good, but how long can it last? Two years later, you guys are so good, but how long can it last? And then we had Channel 9 show and then Howard wrote a book. And like five years later, you guys are great. Up until the last minute, they're like, how long can it last? And he just kept reinventing himself and we kept getting crazier and funnier. We, we even stopped writing bits because we just, you know, people say, well, how much prep did you do? No prep. I'd walk in and sit down and put the paper in front of me and grab a pen. And Howard sit down. Maybe he'd have a scrap of paper that said two words on it. And he'd just start talking. And people say, how the hell could he talk for four or five hours a day? And I used to say, the trick is not getting him to talk. The trick is trying to get him to shut the fuck up so he can go home. Some days he's at 1130. You know, it's crazy. It, it couldn't have been more fun. Slowly but surely, I'm passing him notes. And uh, during the three years when I was working there, it was so organic and slow. But I came up with an idea. I kind of write it down, put it in front of me. He wasn't, he wasn't all that receptive at first. And he, and he used to do this black uh, helicopter reporter, traffic reporter. I give him some stuff for that. He'd say, hey, you know, I don't really need any help. You know, the only time I ever listened to the show ever in all those years was the very first couple of weeks because I didn't know the show. I didn't know anything about it. And I'm listening and all of a sudden, you know, I hear him using the stuff that I gave him. I'm like, oh. And then the next time I went in and handed it to him, he kind of sheepishly said, oh, good, you know, thank you. You know, I'll tell you a great story that's not believable, and I never blame people if they don't believe it. And I've never heard this tape. It's got to exist somewhere. I did really, really well in Philadelphia long before I ever met Howard. 79, 80, big star in Philadelphia with this, was this guy, John DeBella who had been on Long Island radio in the 70s. And I knew him from when I worked at the workshop recording studios because he used to come in and do voiceovers because he was on the radio. And they did live broadcasts on WLIR from a place called My Father's Place. So it was all very incestuous. So I go to Philadelphia and do his show. And it was the Comedy Factory outlet and the comedy works and bananas and comedy cabaret. It was so much work in Philadelphia. There's this place called the Comedy Works where you worked on the third floor. And if you had to take a leak, you had to walk down the back stairs and walk across the second floor where the people were dining and there was a belly dancer. You had to walk between the crowd and the belly dancer to go take a leak. No, it's just not believable. But you can ask the Paul Reisers and the Larry Millers and the Jerry Seinfelds, Dennis Waltzberg's not with the same one, but they all, we all worked it. This girl had just started on the show and I was listening to the show. And I know exactly where I was. You know, if this is not in the book, I got to put it. I got to put it in the next book. I was standing on a stool, a step stool, fixing something. And the reason I remember it so well is because I never 
fix anything. I don't know how to fix. Any, I know how to tell dick jokes. That's all. But I was on a stool fixing something in the kitchen of a house. And Gary came in and said, hey, how did the girl here want to take off all the clothes? And Howard said, all right, bring her in. And he would, this is very early at NBC. And it took a long time for people to realize everything that happened on that show really did happen. The only thing that didn't happen is when he said a girl was a 10, she was probably a three. That was it. You know, the girl was really there and she really had her clothes off, but they didn't look as good as he used to say they looked. But Gary said, this girl wants to get naked. And Howard said, all right, bring her in. And she, I guess she walked in wearing a fur coat. He said, come on in. She came in and he said, sit down. And Howard said, who are you? And she said, my name's Maria. And I work the door at the Comedy Factory outlet. And my favorite comedian is Jackie Marlin. And I know because I almost fell off the stepping stool. I couldn't believe it. Of course, he didn't address that. He didn't go any further with it. And then I guess she just took off her coat and she was standing there stark naked. It was a shot heard around the world. And the ironic thing is a million years later, we shot that scene for private parts. And I was there, but I wasn't there when it really happened. But I was sitting there and Jenna Jameson was slowly, one thing at a time, undressing next to me. And we shot it. So for two days, Jenna Jameson was taking off her clothes and putting them back on and handing them to me, which was, you know, one of the highlights of working on the show. You know, she was an old friend. She was great. You know, everything is on the Internet. You know, I really should ask, you know, the people that know, does anybody have tape of that from way, way back then? I, I think NBC was very weird about giving up the tapes of the early Stern show days. So who knows? You know, I should have asked, what's his name? Oh, but he came later. Our friend Kevin Metheny, pig virus. I'm I'm sorry. I get wound up and I get going, Jeff. You, you feel free to tell me to shut up. No, I love, I, I love your stories. <laughs> it's gold, Jackie. It's gold. It's gold. Gold, yeah. What would you say if, if you were to look back, like your personal, like crazy, I mean, besides... Jenna undressing, which it's got to be a highlight. But like, besides that, what would be like the two, your favorite craziest things? Like not necessarily fan favorites, but like. Well, James Taylor came in and we we're in a small studio. Fred's sitting there and I'm sitting here and the guests sat 45 degrees to me. The guests would sit there and would literally, the guest's left knee would be almost hitting my right knee because that's the, you know, it's, a, it's close quarters. And James Taylor, who I absolutely love, came in and sat there and played four songs live, and our knees were like an inch from each other. And I'm like, you know, in his entire career, there would never have been any reason for him to sit this close to another human being and play. It was such an odd situation. And I was in heaven. I was euphoric. I mean, I fell in love to his music in Cape Cod. Meanwhile, between songs, I'm writing these horrible things for Howard to say to James, you know. So James, <laughs> when you wrote Fire and Rain, did you keep time by banging your head against the padded cell. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm writing this about my hero. But that, that was so memorable. One crazy thing is this guy came in and this child actor. I always have to slow down when I tell the story because I forget the guy's name until I get to the end of the story. He comes in and Howard says something to him and he went from zero to 60. He went berserk. Don't start with me, man. Don't get in my ass, man. I'm not your dancing monkey, man. I don't have to take your crap. I'll come over this console. I'll beat the living crap out of you. Just watch what you say to me, man. I was like, holy Christ. I said to myself, this guy's a, he's on fire. This guy's going to kill somebody. And it was, it was, it was the guy who was, was the guy who killed his wife. Beretta? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's his name? Oh, oh, but, oh I know the the guy. He was in uh, he was a little rascal too, right? And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I have Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Robert Blake. 
Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll come over to this thing. I'll bet. And I'm like, in two seconds, Ronnie and Gary were behind him in the studio. I'm like, wow, this guy's got a short fuse, man. And then one time we're sitting there, boom, the door pops open. And it's the guy who played the psychiatrist, I, the guy, the really nutty guy on the Newhart show when Newhart played the psychiatrist, the first one, Jack somebody, and Chuck McCann, who was a child talk show host when I was a kid, and Pat McCormick, one of the all-time funniest, wildest, crazy people in the world, and Sam Kinison. Sam had been at the, at the, you know, the comedy store, and he got done, and they were all doing coke, and he said, hey, let's go do the Stern Show, and they piled into Sam's jet and flew to New York and just came, unannounced, just came bumbling into the studio. It was like the Mount Rushmore comedy I was looking at over my shoulder. It was, it was as wild as it could be. And that was the kind of stuff you, could, you couldn't write that. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't orchestrate it. You know, hey, Sam, why don't you come with the three icons? Joe Walsh walked in one day wearing nothing but his bathrobe. And it, you know, and it was open. And his junk is hanging there. You know, just, just such great, great, great stuff. You know, Robert Klein's on the phone arguing with his wife. He completely forgets he's on the radio, national radio. And he's having a, a knockdown, dragout fight with his ex-wife on the phone. Oh, God. And afterwards, he was like, he, could, he couldn't believe it. And that's the kind of shit, that's the kind of stuff that just happened. <laughs> Milton Berle came on. We went to town on him. And, you know, when we get done with a segment, we break. And, and I'd usually have to go to the bathroom because I drank so much coffee. So we walk out of the studio. Milton Berle's walking in front of me with his handler, whoever brought him in. And he turned to his handler. And he said, he just talked about my cock for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so great. So great. He is legendary. <laughs> legendary. So much fun. <laughs> so you must have had like a million people coming in and out of there. Yeah, you know, everybody. So let me ask you a question. So while at the Howard Stern show, you pass notes to Howard. You were feeding him jokes and you talk about how you'd hear somebody quote back, oh, Howard said the funniest thing and it was your words verbatim. So how much of the show, I know Howard's very talented, so I'm not trying to take anything away from Howard, but like how much, how much of the show was was you channeling that and, and, and elevating it? It wasn't scripted. Unless we did a bit. We wrote out the bits and then it got pre-recorded. It was all on the fly. There was no script. There was no, why don't you say this? Why don't you do that? It was just notes. And the way I'd best describe it is if me and you and Aaron Cumming are sitting at a table, having dinner, say, or, or hanging out, having coffee, and you're a funny guy, and she's funny, but she's a good audience. And I'm a funny guy. We're going to have a conversation. You know, in the course of the conversation, I'm going to come up with some funny things because I'm a funny guy. But so are you. We're sitting there having coffee. Only when I think of something funny to add, instead of saying it, I write it down and put it in front of you so you could say it too. I mean, say it instead. So you're being who you are, doing what you do, and I'm giving you a line here and there. You know, we could go however long without any, and then it could be boom, boom, boom. You never knew. And it's funny because people always say, I could always tell when you wrote a joke because how hard you laugh. And I always tell people that is not necessarily true. To every single thing Howard says, Robin goes, hey, Robin, my mother died. Hey, Robin, uh, how's your pet? Same cookie cutter laugh. I laugh relative to how funny something is. Now, did I laugh really loud and really hard at a lot of the stuff I wrote? Yes, because I wouldn't have written it and passed it to him in the first place if I didn't think it was really funny. But because I was there, now I was a conduit so Fred could do it too. And Howard is also very funny. 
And there were times where I'd come home and Nancy would say, you know, the funniest thing you wrote today. And she'd say, I said, well, I, I didn't write that. Fred wrote that. She said, but you laugh so hard. Yeah, because it was funny. I laugh if it's funny. And I'd come home and she'd say, you know, it was the greatest line today was such and such. Oh, I didn't write that. Howard said that on his own. But you laugh so hard. Yeah, because it was that funny. I wasn't there to, to propel myself or to make myself look good. I was there to be a good audience and keep the show going. And if something was funny, I was going to laugh at it. And that's exactly what happened. And so there was so many times where people said, oh, you did you write this? Did you write that? No, no. And there were times when Fred had hand me a note and I'd point down because I had already written the same exact thing verbatim. I mean, it, it was such a well-oiled machine, you, you just really couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. It was just so much fun. I wouldn't fault you even if you did laugh at your own jokes, because I don't think it's a matter of laughing at them because you wrote them. I think there's some appreciation. No, it's it's laughing at what's funny. Right. But there's also appreciation of you handing something to someone and them actually executing it. There's some joy in that too. It's like if you wrote a script for a TV show and you watch or a movie and you watched it, it was like you could take you take extra joy in it because they executed your words perfectly. I get that. And what was so amazing, though, you know, it got to a point he would read my writing without hardly pre-reading. He would just trust me. But there were times when he'd skip something, but he'd circle around because it was such a good line. He'd come around and figure a way to get back to the line. Some things I wrote about Fred, he would twist around and make it about me. Or if I insulted Robin, he'd turn around and make it about Fred. I mean, there's no exaggerating what a major, major talent the guy is. Just to be able to talk for that long and be entertaining and be funny. But I always tell people, it's like if you're a world-class sprinter and you run the 100-meter dash in 10 seconds, you're a world record holder. If you run it in 9-9, you are off the charts. You're on Pluto. And it's just like, all well, it is. He's, he was like a sprinter. And I was the wind at his back, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. And I never wanted any more credit than when I left for more money. I thought I deserved more money. It wasn't that I wanted more credit or wanted to be any, anything said or anything. You know, it was just, wait a minute, there's a big chunk of money here and we should be sharing a little bit more equally. That's all. It was a ridiculously smooth machine. And people would freak out when they came in. They'd be like, Holy Christ, you know, wow, it, it would freak them out. You, you had a good relationship with Fred? Yeah, Fred's great. Fred's great. You know, he, I love him. He's an odd duck. He would take a bullet for Howard. He's a company guy. He wouldn't submit, if we went to Los Angeles or if we went to England, he wouldn't submit his expenses because he didn't think the company should have to pay. Now, you can't, how do I, how do I stand there and scream that I want more money? and compete with that kind of company, man. Forget about asking for more money. He doesn't think he should have to pay for his, you know. And he's just that righteously a good, good, good guy. I've never stopped singing his praise. Funniest, fastest, smartest. I mean, if you was talking, he would finish your sentence with something so funny before you knew where you were going. And, you know, an example of his talent, we're in Abbey Road, Beatles Studio, broadcasting live from Abbey Road, which is like, I still, when I say that out loud, I feel like I'm lying. I feel like I'm making it up. I mean, we were in the room. We were in that room. And Jack Bruce comes. Jack Bruce is going to play a theme from Imaginary Western. And Howard calls Leslie West on the phone. 
And theme for Magic Western is such a slow dirge that Jack is playing it on the piano. When the wagons and Leslie West has got the phone to his amplifier and he's playing the lead. It's like, I don't know if it's seven seconds or 20 seconds delay, but it worked because it was such a slow song. It was chills. It was unbelievable. And then how it's like, come on, Jack, can you do another song? He said, I don't know what I can do. He said, yeah, maybe Crossroads, you know, but you know, I play the bass. And how it says, Fred, can you play Crossroads? This is 1980. It's the Princess Trust concert in whatever year. It might have been 1992. Can you play Crossroads? And Fred just got his guitar. Fred played Crossroads with Jack Bruce. He did the Eric Clapton part of the Cream song Crossroads with Jack Bruce. And and Howard, Howard was like, oh, good, Fred. He probably said to Fred, I think you missed the note. You know, I mean, that's, that's the kind <laughs> of relationship. But every, and we were all just, you know, the people that don't know music and don't know guitar, it didn't mean anything to, but you know, the rest of us like, Jesus Christ, he's he's playing crossroads with, with, with Jack Bruce, you know, geez. He, he was, and he's just that good. He was just that good. You know, and when we made private parts when we made, when they made private parts, I still can't believe that my chapter about private parts isn't in the book. How how I made that call, I will never know because that chapter showed how they left me out, how they underpaid me, how I didn't get credit. All the check marks of reasons I left the show are all contained in that chapter. But they made that movie, and every day Fred came would come in and say, Jackie, they, they cut out a couple more of my lines, or they cut a couple more of my scenes. And I don't know if you saw the movie, but by the end of the movie, Fred is almost a mime. He says almost nothing because he stole every fucking scene. And so they cut his part just down to nothing. He still almost stole a movie, but not on purpose. You know, he just, yes, he's my friend. Do you feel the same way about Robin or less of a relationship? She's all right. She's, no, she's just damaged good. She's all right. You know, she really is all right. People thought we hated each other. We didn't hate each other. You know, she, I seriously yelled at her one time, really, really angrily on the air because she sandbagged. We did a thing called Sternak, which was our version of Karnak, the Carson thing. You know, she could put something in the toilet. And after everything, if she didn't do her, <laughs> the thing would lie there. Howard had my microphone down and I would work very hard on those because they, they were a very big, it took me years to talk them into doing them. And then they were a highlight. People loved it. And she sandbagged it and she came running to the room and she said, <laughs> I said, get out of here. You five minutes later, we were fine. We all, we all got along swimmingly. We, we got along a lot better probably than it seemed like on the air. Cause once the microphones went on, the claws came out. You know, Gary had come and said, uh-oh, uh-oh. And we said, what's the matter, Gary? He said, we haven't got any guests today. You know what that means? Everybody's in the, you know, that means everybody's going to get it from all angles, you know. I used to feel like Bruce Lee. You know, I have Fred and Gary and Robin and John and Howard all coming at me from different angles, you know. And I'm like, but I love it because, <laughs> you know, I can take care of myself. <laughs> so it sounds like you have amazing memories. But then when you do mention the reasons you left, let me ask you one quick question. I'm just curious. Do you regret not getting representation from Don Bushwald? No, it seemed- no, 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 no. You know, it's so funny. Somebody said, Twitter to text me or something said, Jackie, do you still regret quitting your job? I never regret it. The one thing I didn't count on, and I'm sure I said this in the book, was a couple of months after I left, I hadn't realized how unnatural our setting was. thought, well, you know, I won't be making the money anymore, but I'll still have plenty of fun. And you don't realize 
to sit with three or four or five other very talented, very funny people in a confined space and laugh for four or five hours a day is such an unnatural thing, but you took it for granted. And that's what you went through withdrawals from, not from fame or money or anything like that. It was just, it was so much fun. It really was, when it was bad, it was fun. When we were screaming at each other, we were fun. I mean, I'd come in there so hungover and I would be cross-eyed and at the end of the show, I'd look at the stack of notes, I'd be like, who wrote those? But it was so much fun. But So for a couple of months, I said, listen, I would love my job back. They didn't return the call, which was fine. And in retrospect, I'm sure I knew damn well it was too late. It's hard to explain to people because it just looked so rosy. You know, Jackie's making a million, you know, not a million, but, you know, with all things combined, I'm making a million dollars a year and, and having the time of my life. But I say to people, get up at 4.30 in the morning, three days in a row, and then we'll have a discussion. And they're like, well, construction workers get up at four in the morning. Like, yeah, okay, but I didn't sign up to be a construction worker. So it was, it was, it was an odd choice. And I got divorced from my wife. People thought, oh, Nancy left Jackie when he left the show. What happened was me and Nancy were in the, just about broken up for three years, but there was no time. You, you did the show. They're dangling huge amounts of money to go to Detroit or go to Chicago or go to Las Vegas. So I'm working a weekend. And then when I finally had a weekend off, the last thing I was going to do was go looking for a place to live. You know, I'm not going to leave my house. And, you know, so we just kind of hung around and we were very, very good friends long before we lived together and got married. So, so it worked. But I also realized after I got off the show, this, being on the show probably saved my life because I drank a lot. But you couldn't drink that much if you had to get up at 4.30 in the morning, a lot less anyway. So when I left the show, all of a sudden, I had nothing but free time, which is the devil's play workshop, you know. And I knew I couldn't spend my life waiting for 5 o'clock to come. And I said, you know what? I got to make it never 5 o'clock. So we had just bought a house on the beach. I moved into a house by myself. Split up with my wife, lost my job, and quit drinking booze all at the same time. And if you read about that, they say if any one of those things happens in your life, don't change anything else because you need the, the support. Like if you quit drinking, you need the wife and the house and a job. Or if you lose your job, you need the wife and the. And I, all four simultaneously, and it was rough, you know, it was, I'll tell you, it was rough. But, you know, you may do. And, uh, I just stopped drinking and people say, well, you, did you go to AA, withdrawals and all that? And I said, no. I said, well, then you didn't have a problem. And I said, well, you tell my wife I didn't have a problem. You know? <laughs> but it was crazy, and that, but no regrets. All the people I've met since May of 2001, I've never had a drink with. So I have so many friends I've never had a drink with. You know, it's very, very odd. First, it seemed weird. And I always talk to me, you know, I probably should counsel a little bit because when you first quit drinking, you think, well, I can't go out. I said, wait a minute, anybody can quit drinking if they just stay home and stare at the walls. And I said, but you can't go into a bar because everybody's going to be like, you shouldn't be in here. You're not one of us. Get out of here. Meanwhile, you go to a bar and you get a glass of ice water and put a straw in it. Nobody knows you're not drinking. And most importantly, nobody gives a fuck. And nobody was drinking as much as me. Like I'll be talking to somebody and they'd be holding their drink for an hour. And I'd feel like saying, are you going to drink that or what? Jesus Christ. You've been, you know, because they're not there to get drunk. They're there to be sociable. And uh, it's a whole learning curve, but it happens quick. And, you know, people always like, oh, do you mind if I drink in front of you? I'm like, don't be ridiculous. You know, nobody drinks more than my family. And it, it's just been great. I've been living on the water here for 20 years and I've been through a couple different girlfriends, but the girl I got now just, you know, stellar. I mean, I guess I wasn't easy to live with, even sober. A couple of great girlfriends, and I screwed them up. I screwed up a little bit here and there, but now uh, Barbara's been here five years, and we're 
happy as a pig in duty, you know, and it, I'm not getting any younger. I'm 72. You know, I got enough money to live till I'm 80, but with my luck, I'll probably live to be 90 and I'll be, I'll be out there with, <laughs> a, with a tin cup. <laughs> well, everyone, everyone go buy the, the joke man, Bowder Stern. Let's keep Jackie going. So, uh, get him enough revenue for another five years. Yeah. The, 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 the Amazon page is at Jackie, the joke man, Dot com. One word, JackieTheJokeMan.com. You put that in, the Amazon page comes up. And did I tell you about the whole thing with Howard giving me a bump? Did I tell you that? No, no. All of a sudden, I got a bump in sales. My rep said, Jack, your sales all of a sudden perked up like crazy. I'm like, well, that's good. He said, well, what? I said, I do Mark Simone here and there, and I do Q104, and I'm doing lots of podcasts and interviews. But I've always done those. And he goes, I don't know. He said, it's good stuff. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. What happened was Howard put out a book and he never told his audience, Jackie put out a book or you should buy Jackie's book. He didn't even acknowledge that I had one. So they have no idea. You know, there wasn't a lot of promotion. I had no money behind me or anything. What happened was when he put out his book, if you went to buy his book, I'm sure you bought stuff on Amazon. If you bought his book on Amazon, underneath it said, people who bought this book also bought this. And there's my book, Suttering John's book, Artie Lang's book. So people already have their mouse out. They already have their credit card in. So with one click, they get my book too. So everybody's like, what the fuck? And so I must he, he must have sold it. I don't know whether it was 20, 50, 100, 1,000. I don't know. Like, who knows? But I, I think it'd break his heart if he knew he helped me. <laughs> you know, that, and that's not fair because I'm, I'm sure he would not begrudge me. You know, we have a very, very strange relationship. People say, how's your relationship with Howard? I'm sure if somebody went up to him and said, how's your relationship with Jackie? He'd say, fine. Why? You know, why do you ask? People say, oh, are you guys friends? I say, how can I? I can't really say I'm friends with somebody if I haven't seen them in, in 10 years or five years or whatever it's been. It's kind of like pompous to say, yeah, we're friends, but we're not not friends. He's an R.A. character. You know, he really is an R.A. character. Of course, he's not in my documentary, and Robin's not in my documentary, and Gary couldn't do it, and Fred couldn't do it. And I understand they couldn't do it. They know where their bread is buttered, you know. Sure. Absolutely. So, but I did a documentary and it's, and it's not negative. It's, it's not, just like the book. It's not mean. It tells the truth. And it's, it is a great book and everyone should get it. I do have one, one final question, I suppose. Eight inches. <laughs> which, is, which is actually too wide for a lot of girls. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing Artie Lang replaced you. I'm guessing you guys have a, a, he a didn't wonderful. Replace me. Well, I'm he sorry. They eventually, he me. didn't replace you because you're not replaceable. No, no, no. He came much later. They had tried five people. I didn't pay attention, but they've tried five, six, seven different people in my chair for. It wasn't my chair. I, I never named it my chair, but they tried to put different people to have my function a week at a time, a couple of days at a time for a long time. And Artie didn't come on the show till after 9-11. I left in March, and he wasn't on the show until October. So there was no crossover. And we knew each other, and we had been friends. His father came home one day and said, Artie, you got to hear this radio show. It is so fucking funny. And this guy, Jackie Martin, was so funny. He got turned on to the Stern Show, and then he used to come with his pals to see me at Rascals. They loved my stupid jokes. It was a way, you know, and he couldn't even envision that I would ever leave. He said in his wildest dreams, he'd never think that somebody would leave that job. But I left the job, and then he wound up there. I did his TV show a couple times. I did his podcast a bunch of times. We're pals. I figured you were pals. He wrote the foreword for your book. 
Yeah, so yeah. I figured it you were pals. Good. I just he's a real nice guy, you know, and he's really, you know, he's he just he's like a lot of people. He has issues, you know. It, you know, it's a tough road to hold the whole comedy thing. It really is, you know. You're as good and talented and crazy. He just he's nuts, but he's wonderful. All right, one final question. You go back in time. They offer you that five year deal, the one that ends with nine hundred thousand dollars a year. Do you just say yes or do you still wait? Are they on hold? Are they on hold? If they're on hold, just pick it up and say yes. No, I, I do anything. You know, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's the regrets I have was two months after I left, McCartney came on the show and I had been screaming for years, look, can we do four days a week? You know, because once in a blue moon, we would have a four day week because of a holiday and it'd be like heavenly. I'm like, Howard, let's do it for you. He said, I can't. Mel won't let me do four days. I'm like, I don't think Mel ever, you know, Howard could have done what he wanted. Howard didn't want a three-day weekend. He didn't want to go home and party and hang out and be crazy. He wanted to be on the air. And I don't blame him. He has Eye of the Tiger. But, and then they wind up three days a week. Could I eat that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? That would be spectacular. But that, that'll never happen. Anything that I wanted to do would just be so self-aggrandizing. You know, after, not long after I left, little Hank the Angry Dwarf died. And I couldn't go to his funeral. I just couldn't because it, it would have been all about me. Like, look at Jackie's trying to get some publicity or something. So, you know, as much as I was closer to him than anybody, but I just, I couldn't go to his funeral. So, you know, it, it was a little bit weird, but that was, that was nobody's call. Nobody told me not to come. And I just, you try and do the right thing. After 9-11, I mean, it was horrible for everybody, but especially indescribable out here. I wrote to Howard and I said, Howard, Clinton and Gore were absolute polar opposites, 180 degrees. And they're sitting together in church and praying to try and show some unity and solidarity. What a great window to put the show back together. New York could really use a laugh. I think it would perk up the whole goddamn tri-state area. And I wasn't being self-aggrandizing. I was like, you know what? I know that would have been a pick-me-up for a lot of people. And it absolutely would have. And he actually wrote back and said, Jackie, we're not politicians. We're performers. And I think it even ended right there. That Thanks, but no thanks. It wasn't go fuck yourself, but it was like, and, and I know he knew exactly what I meant, you know, and I wasn't trying to finagle my, I, I honestly thought that that was a great idea. Once again, depending on how you look at it, you're trying to weasel your way back in or you're trying to give people a reason to feel a little better. Maybe both. I think it would have been great. And maybe, maybe one day, I mean, Van Halen got you back together. So, I mean, there's hope. No, they don't want me. I can't sing. (laughs) I appreciate you sharing all these stories and and being so open. You're, I really enjoy talking to you and and listening to your stories. I never, ever, I never, ever, ever get sick of talking. You know, people come up and say, uh, oh, I miss you on the show, man. And, you know, it's been 20 years. They say, oh, you must get sick of hearing that. And I say, listen, if I ever get sick of hearing it, kick me in the balls. I'll never get sick of hearing it. And now, I mean, the compliments, I'll leave you with this. The greatest compliment I think I got so long. Well, the other day, somebody did a cameo. That's one thing. If you want me to tell jokes to your friends, cameo.com slash Jackie Marlin. It's making me a lot of money. It's really fun. I did my first gay wedding the other day. I mean, gay anniversary. Two guys married for five years. And I did one for... A 20-year-old. He said, I'm a 20-year-old, and my best friend is a 20-year-old, and we're in the film department up here in Harvard, and we really, really love you. We love the old shows. We're Stern fans. We love the old shows. And I did a, a cameo for the guy's birthday, and they wrote back, oh, it's the greatest thing, blah, blah, blah. And they're 20, 20 years old, and they're in Harvard. I mean, it's really weird. But at some point, I got an email from a kid in Toronto, and it said, Jackie, 
I live in Toronto and I got turned on to the Howard Stern show in 2007. And it instantly became my favorite show. I really live for it. I really love it. And then as I was became more and more of a listener, I started listening to the old shows. And he said, it's like having a favorite new band and finding out that their earlier albums were better. <laughs> you can't make up a compliment like that. I mean, how, how wonderful is that? I, was, I wrote back to the guy and said, well, I, I can't blow you because I'm not allowed in Canada because I had a couple DWIs. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great compliment. And it's, and, yeah, and it's cl classic. The four of you together were, were magic. And I'm thrilled that you're interested and thanks for reading my book and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. It was it was a pleasure again. All right, and I'll be coming around, eventually going to come around with my documentary. I expect you to come out and hang out and we'll go to dinner and the whole thing. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. All right, Jeff. Thank you, baby. Thank you. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> Later, dude. All right. How fun was that? It's always a pleasure talking to Jackie, the joke man, Martling. It was so great to have him back on the show. Everyone should go purchase his book on Amazon, The Joke Man Bow to Stern. It's awesome. The giveaway that we're doing, again, is hashtag title of my book giveaway. You can see where it was inspired by the conversation I had with Jackie when he was coming up with the title of his book. So if you're feeling feisty and you're listening to this, and it is March 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, 2021, before 11 p.m. on March 3rd, and you're like, I'm going to try and win one of those books. All you have to do is go to Twitter and tweet hashtag title of my book giveaway and tag my Twitter account for the show at Jeff DeWoskin Show. This game was featured on hashtag Roundup this past Saturday. So I'm going to spotlight this hashtag as the hashtag trend of the week. These tweets that I'm about to read will be retweeted at hashtag Roundup. They did not win. As I'm reading this, there have been no winners. They're just fun examples to inspire you to head over to Twitter and tweet hashtag title of my book giveaway and tag at Jeff DeWoskin Show. All right, here's one from Jackie. Jackie and the giant peach margarita. That's so Jackie. MX Mark, the biggest of beards. That's a page turner. Jeff Sarcastic. I solve problems. Yes, he does. Yes, he does, folks. The Notorious Becky, Anxiety and Me. Carmen, In Love with a Prince. These are all great hashtag title of my book giveaway entries. Head over to Twitter, tweet your own, tag at Jeff DeWoskin Show. Get to know these tweeters. These are great insights into all of them. Jake W., covered in dog hair and with a little picture of his dog, Bentley. It's me, Helen. A Brief History of Wine. We've all been there. Sean's title of his book, Turning Tweets into Twitter Swag. He's got a bunch of great shirts there, including one from Hashtag Roundup. Dangerous. In case of emergency, why you should keep a book in the bathroom. CK. All the things I admire about Donald Trump is the title for a book. And of course, that book is completely full of blank pages. How to open cupboards and leave them open. Whose book is that? It's mine. And finally, Jerry and the Colored Pencils from our super fan, Jerry. All right, so head over. These are all great examples of hashtag title of my book giveaway. Head over to Twitter, tweet your own, and you could win. And you could win a signed copy of The Joke Man, Bow to Stern by Jackie Martling. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for coming back week after week. Can you believe it? 43 episodes. Tell your friends. Subscribe, like, share your love of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWoskin Show, and we'll see you next week. Hi.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.